Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to 2021. This is Survival Kit for the Mental with your host, San Canessa, squeezing your mind and gut tightly from somewhere in the Southwest and mostly in the Americas. This year, I'm going to be tuning in with different folks that are practitioners, therapists, thinkers, feelers, lawyers, mappers, painters, and all sorts of other kinds in which we'll get to share and explore around our mental health and our diagnosis and our practices and tools that have led us to endure different states of mind and different predispositions and conditions. So I hope this finds somewhat of a fruitful turn and coin for you and that the tools that we discover together in this podcast come to serve you in your own path. So as always, may you have the courage to change and play and doubt everything. I am a someone of a bipolar, queer, neurodiverse advocate, peer wellness specialist in pursuit of variance in dialogue and forms of communicating and discussing our mentals and what sometimes can keep us up at night. So be there as it may. Thank you for tuning in and joining us today. Happy Sunday. Joining us this week, Earthlings, is Rose Costello, a dancer and chef extraordinaire, interested in healing trauma by discovering somatic tools combined with traditional therapy methods. She lives and works in Paonia, Colorado, and specializes in helping people heal and empower themselves through the modality of dance. Welcome, Rose. Can you share with us what you do and what your interests are and what your mental health is looking like at this moment in your life? Sure. Um, so I, I live and work in Paonia. Um, I teach dance. I teach dance to kids and I teach dance to adults. But I also really feel like I teach people how to innate or activate innate parts of themselves, uh, empowering them through dance, through movement, through creativity. Uh, and so a lot of things fall under that umbrella, but right now teaching dance is the main one. Um, my interests are in my own self-development, figuring out my own patterns, triggers. Right now I'm really fascinated with how I am in relationship and seeing myself change and grow in that realm. I also love food. I love cooking food. I love my relationship to food now. Uh, And I'm pretty interested in just the things that are maybe seemingly out of our control as far as just different schools of thought around how we are supposed to look as people, how our bodies are supposed to look like, and reconfiguring that narrative to a more realistic, healthy, and authentic um, state. Mm. 
And when it comes to your mental health, um, how would you say you've lived with these practices that you harness, um, this like pandemic experience? Mm. Uh, the pandemic has been very challenging. I, right before the pandemic, the year leading up to the pandemic was a very hard year for me in my life. And I was just starting to get out of that. And by doing so with a very strict or disciplined practice of exercise and eating well, and really the biggest discipline of them all, which was my um, self-talk, really monitoring how I was speaking to myself. Um, and then, you know, like I, I feel like many people have had this experience of kind of really feeling like, okay, 2020 is going to be my year and all these things are going to happen. And then February and then March comes along and um, this giant pause took over everything. And what came to the surface there was a lot of unprocessed grief that I had. Mm -hmm. So I went through a, a grieving process and... I think the space and time and being furloughed from my job and having nothing really to do allowed for a lot of healing to take place. But for a while, it just looked like trauma after trauma resurfacing and coming up and having the space to look at it. And um, I certainly went to some, I, you know, I look back on that time and I see how grief affected me so deeply and you know, made me do things that I probably wouldn't do now. Um, and ultimately it took just time, space, and getting back into these disciplined practices of my self-care to reach more of a homeostasis place mm -hmm. mentally. In your time and experience, in your time and your experience with grief, like how was your mental talk with yourself? like what was it like it was uh very scary to look back at those thoughts and the things that were happening I had a lot of guilt and a lot of regret and a lot of um sadness I didn't know where to put and I heard someone say that grief is a love that has no place to go and that would be a really great way of describing how I felt about my grief um and I, I follow Young Pueblo on Instagram and I love the, I love taking in information in these little bite-sized chunks because it, it's easy for me to see a post and then think about it for a day or so. Or one of the things that he said was, um, don't trust your thoughts when your mind is in a space of turbulence. Mm -hmm. And that was a really important thing for me to understand and to see, to read. And I still reference that almost daily you know and just kind of observe wow okay if I and now it's just as simple as you know how did I sleep last night did I eat today when was the last time I worked out okay can I really trust what's happening in my thoughts can I really believe this story that's coming through that I'm creating about my life um, and I think grief definitely creates stories about your life that maybe aren't totally accurate and it just required a lot of patience and not acting in any sort of destructive or compulsive way to kind of allow me to really get through it and those little things like on a daily like taking a shower you know um eating well um going for a little walk or ways to control that negative thinking absolutely Absolutely. I, I feel like you can't really have one without the other. And both really need to work in tandem. The self-talk has to be there, you know, and, and that takes time. And, and But it's a practice, like everything else. You're just 
to a certain degree, it's, it's simple in the sense of it's a practice of either speaking bad about yourself or it's practice about speaking good about yourself. And, and now there's just certain things that I know, um, that I just choose to avoid because I know they're not like caffeine is a great example for me. Caffeine is not something that I, my body does well with. It stresses my adrenals. It wrecks my nervous system. It makes my PMS really bad. So that's just something I avoid. So I don't have another hurdle in my way. Yeah. We also can't forget about your PMS cookies that at some point I want yeah. to reference okay. that <laughs> amazing endeavor. Um, thinking about it, it's funny cause before we were talking about recording and kind of focusing in this diagnosis after your sharings about grief, mm. I'm wondering if that kind of links us into misdiagnosis because 100%. there's like this energy of grief that I wonder if it was familiar to you in any way and you know if like when that was the first time you experienced it and kind of um, yeah following that thread. Um, absolutely. The grief that I experienced, which was around a breakup, a pretty devastating breakup, completely referenced every other grieving experience I've had from losing my mother when I was 22 to losing this chunk of time in my life of this misdiagnosis time, which I was misdiagnosed for roughly five to eight years, kind of depending on how you look at it. But, um, that was a huge loss of uh, time in my life, and I I didn't realize how much I was grieving that. I would notice that um, I was getting resentful towards family members or I was acting in ways that I wouldn't or quote-unquote shouldn't act if I felt happy and satisfied in my life, and it was realizing that there was all this unresolved trauma and all of this unrecognized grief. And I couldn't even, I didn't even realize that I could grieve this because of the misdiagnosis and because of the, mm, at the time, I think, I think the other thing about grief is that you get it in pieces that you can handle. And so after an event occurs, maybe you can grieve 20% of it or 40%, but the rest can come when you are in a better place emotionally. Maybe you have more support. Maybe your life is going better. Maybe other things are there to kind of support you so that, yeah, you can grieve these things that you maybe couldn't, that I personally couldn't at 22 and 23. Mm -hmm. Now at 36 and a little more tools under my belt, a little more support, I'm able to finally grieve some of these things, let them process. I mean, it's so wild because now I'm even connecting the words of like, the grief of misdiagnosis, mm. you know, and a lot of the times, at least in, you know, my experience with my mental health, like, I don't know what kept me alive. Mm. You know, I don't know, like, specifically if there was something I was doing or a practice that I was, you know, managing to have on a daily basis. I don't know what saved me. Mm. You know, because it's mm -hmm. interesting when you lose people to these things, mm -hmm. like the lines of are so thin to what, you know, what keeps certain right. people alive and what makes other people kind of leave. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. So can you tell us about your experience with misdiagnosis? Absolutely. So I um, have a condition called echolasia, which is an, uh, some think it's an autoimmune disease. It's also been classified as a birth defect. 
there's not a lot of, um, they're not really sure why it happens, but it's paralysis of the lower esophagus, the sphincter muscle that connects the esophagus to the stomach. And what ends up happening is food doesn't enter your stomach. It stays stuck in your esophagus. And over time, it's a degenerative disease, so it gets worse over time. And the the esophagus stops functioning. It stops uh, pushing food down. It stretches out. The muscle turns slack. And a symptom of echolatia is regurgitation of food. So you would eat um, this. They would have a feeling of kind of food being stuck in your chest, almost like a choking feeling, but you're not choking. Um, but you can't. It's very uncomfortable. Very it impedes on your lung space. It, it does all sorts of things. And then kind of the only way to get relief is to regurgitate the food. And I use regurgitate as opposed to throw up because there's no, you're not having to force yourself to throw up. It's just something, it, the food just comes up. It, the painful. food is, yeah, painful, um, uh, very shame inducing right. also because um, it's, and it's a, it's a pretty rare condition. It's one in a hundred thousand. And, um, there's not a lot of, I don't know, not a lot of studies done or something. There's not a lot of knowledge about it in the medical community. And so at the time when I was finally diagnosed at age 23 properly, there was still not a lot of even online information that I could get. Now at 36, when I'm looking, there's support groups and there's other things and there's people sharing their stories and it's a much more understood thing, but so what happens often is um, echolatia is misdiagnosed as bulimia. Mm-hmm. And I started showing signs of echolatia from the time I was about five years old. And it got, yeah. one, by the time I was a teenager, 15, 16, it got to the point where food was coming up way more uh, regularly. It just got worse and worse. And at the time I had a therapist and also, um, my mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was 14. So it's interesting because these two illnesses really ran this parallel track. Um, and I think because my mom was going through such a huge process with her illness, a lot of the energy and focus kind of went to that. And I was sort of just, my therapist asked me if I had ever thrown up and I said yes. And then that was sort of it. I was diagnosed with bulimia. I was, you know, 16 at the time, 17. It was the early 2000s. Eating disorders were very in vogue. You know, there was a lot of people I knew. I came from a dancing background. It was a very natural fit. Mm -hmm. And it was also the first time that I had a community that understood what was happening because really Echolatia produces this secret life. Because... Because that's what I was thinking. I was like, how did it feel to be first diagnosed, even though you weren't properly diagnosed at the time? Like, what did, what was it like for your mental health when, you know, your therapist was like, you have bulimia? Yeah. It, um, yeah, it felt, you know, the one of the first things I did was I joined a support group. And the support group, very questionable whether or not it was helpful for anybody in there. I think it was more of a place for people to kind of trade their stories and inspire each other to not so much get better. And, um, you know, it was, but it was, for me, it was finally having a place where somebody understood what was happening to me. Mm -hmm. 
because I was living at that time, you know, these are very carefree years of your life and kind of like the biggest years for developing your confidence and you're testing yourself out in the world. And that was very much up in the air for me because I had this thing that was happening in my body that was uncontrollable, that I didn't know what was going on. And then so at least finally I had a place where I could talk about what was happening and I could talk, and then at this time, that's a really community. Because I was going to ask you, like, what would it, what did it feel like to relate to other? You know, we all have our teenage experiences, right? Sometimes it's like very typical that the first signs of depression enter like a teen. Like it's such a fertile time. So, what was your relationship to peers and others outside of your family, or even with your family, when that whole development was happening? I had a friend who was also struggling with bulimia mm-hmm. and she was forcing herself to throw up. And I always remember thinking like, wow, I can't believe people have to force themselves to throw up. It's so easy. It's, it's just happening, wow. you know? And so um, you were convinced you had bulimia in this misdiagnosis. Uh, completely, completely. 100%. Because it made so much sense. Never doubted it. No, okay. no. I never thought that there was something wrong with my body because it was, I mean, why would there be anything? You know, it was... Mm-hmm. I had never heard of this condition. There was no, you know, it's, it's this such a, you know, it's just trying to even wrap my head around. Yeah. I mean, it didn't even occur to me until many years later when I was really like, I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And it was also what was happening simultaneously was that my, because food addictions, um, and this is something that just really locked in for me today. It was kind of the behaviors sort of influenced my, my mental state, you know, because I was having to throw up food and then take in food and throw up food sort of all day long, every day that produced the mental condition of the eating disordered mind. So being very addicted to food, being, having a very dysmorphic view of my body, um, all of these kind of, very addictive, depressive states because I couldn't really get out of this thing. So it's interesting how that 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 particular diagnosis and then kind of the behaviors of the bulimia then led into the mental experience of having an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And like during that time, your mom was also like exp- you know was diagnosed with cancer and she passed when you were twenty two. Mm-hmm. Um, but you didn't get proper diagnosis until you were 23 to right. after she right. passed. Um, how, how was your life for those years? Like, how was your mental, how was your life? How would you resume like that chunk of seven, mm. you know, that decade from 2015 to 25? Mm. Um, it, it's, it's hard for me to, I have a lot of sadness around that. When I think about myself at 15, I was you know, I was dancing, I was starting to choreograph, I was starting to really come into myself in this artistic way. And this experience really took away a lot of that, because it Mm. totally knocked my confidence down. And it took so much of my life focus, you know, by the time I was 18, it was absolutely an everyday experience multiple times a day. Mm. And that's also the time that I kind of discovered travel and alcohol. Because what ended up happening is after my parents sort of got this, my therapist insisted on telling my parents that I was bulimic. Mm -hmm. So then I had even more people in my life kind of saying, you are this thing. 
And that made them really watch what I was doing and watch every time I would, after I ate, you know, where would I go? And the echolatia, there's no relief really until you regurgitate. And so I was doing all these sneaky things, you know, going outside, just doing whatever in order to relieve my esophagus, clear my esophagus out. And um, I kind of quickly got into drinking a lot and, um, you know, doing drugs and um, traveling because I was able to, if I wasn't around people that knew about it, then it could kind of continue and I could sort of do enough of a smoke and mirror thing that I could get around things, but I would only stay places. I mean, in that time I did, I did a, a chunk of time in Italy. I did six months in Chicago. I did six months in Scotland and all these little jump around places because I, that's really the only time I could spend. Um, my, I didn't really have close friendships or, and there was no possibility of having a romantic relationship. You know, I would, I would have a lot of promiscuous sex. I definitely used sex as a way of kind of feeling normal and feeling connected to people because I could, you know, for a very like one night or something, have a, an experience of being looking quote unquote normal, but any sort of longer time with somebody, it was so obvious that there was something happening with my body or that I had an eating disorder, something was going on. Um, that it just made me not get close to people. And that really took, I mean, that's something I'm still working with. You know, I didn't even recognize that as being part of the trauma because even though I was properly diagnosed at 23, I didn't find out until about 10 years after that that bulimia is the common misdiagnosis for echolatia. So I didn't understand that that was even an experience another person with echolatia could have had. So it wasn't until many years down the road that I was able to see, oh, oh, that's what was happening. Oh, wait, I was misdiagnosed for years. Oh, wait, I, I even was misdiagnosed. I was so convinced that I had bulimia for so long that it didn't even occur to me that there could have been something else happening, even after getting this confirmation of the diagnosis. It was just so embedded in my psyche that I was this person who was out of control with food, um, and didn't want to get better. And then of course these things were all confirmed to me by the, you know, I had a nutritionist, I had a therapist, I had, um, my family knew all this and, uh, everybody was sort of confirming this same story to me. Mm -hmm. That makes me, it's, it's insane. It makes me think about like even levels of reservations that we have as individuals because, like, even with, like, mental health, you know, we're ashamed of our diagnosis. Mm. It's, like, for everyone, I think maybe it's relieving, but I know that at some point in their lives with mental health and illness and different stuff, it's, like, you don't want to tell anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, like, is someone going to love me if they know I'm bipolar? Like, mm. who would want to be with a bipolar person mm. on me? Mm -hmm. You know, so kind of, and that kind of self-isolation that one imposes with, like, those kind of beliefs that, you are not lovable, you know, Yeah, because you have these things make you. And it's like there's also these like narratives of like secretness that one mm. gets used to kind of embodying, you know, mm -hmm. like being secretive. I still till the day think there's things I like to be secretive about just to kind of keep my identity. Oh, yeah. You know, in place. And, and it's just, yeah, how it there's it really like 
makes us who we are. Mm. You know, even though we move out, you know, we start opening up to the world and to ourselves. But I wonder if there are certain parts of that experience that will always be there. You know, which brings me back to grief, right? Because mm. then we're like grieving again. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I think that the, um, what you're speaking to around just the control of identity, controlling your own personal mm-hmm. identity and controlling mm-hmm. what it is that people see about you and that being something that it was so programmed in me that it took me years to even figure out who I was, what I liked, what I wanted to do, what was, what was true to me, who I was as my, who was my authentic, authentic person. Mm-hmm. And in that process, I denied a lot of my grief. Because I, once I had the surgery, which was putting me more of a normal lifestyle, it, it was almost like I just said, okay, that part of my life is done. I'm never thinking about it again. I want to be normal. And I didn't talk about it for a long time. And I still don't often talk about it. Um, I'm just now really letting go of the shame around it. And the more I do that, the better it is and the easier it is to, to, to live with. And, um, but yeah, I think the, the grieving process is, you know, there's a lot to grieve there and even understanding, um, myself better allows me to understand what parts of myself need attention and what parts of myself are still grieving. And, you know, with that, it's like with the grief, like there's that cultivation and preservation of who we think we are that comes from inside of us. And then there is the exterior imposed, mm-hmm. right, cultural, mm-hmm. like values and measures mm-hmm. that of who we think we should be, mm-hmm. you know, right, that are kind of a big reinforcers Mm -hmm. to like self-destructive behavior or you know self-doubt or you know different scales and like need of validation but we were talking a little bit about it and into um yeah if we could see like what your experience was during that time with the exterior cultural Mm -hmm. values kind Mm -hmm. of placed on you Mm -hmm. and to also kind of inquire and like how the development of of your own self-worth changed what you felt culture demanded of you. Mm, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It was, um, yeah. So living in this kind of eating disordered state of mind and the, the, because at the worst of the echolatia, when my esophagus was really completely unfunctioning, um, it looked like extreme severe bulimia. And with that comes all the mood swings and the sugar highs and lows and this just this really dysmorphic view of myself and it was something that was so prevalent in culture and it was so um you know I had it was like this perfect place for me to lock in because everybody I knew was obsessed with their body and their weight and working out and wanting to be thinner and it was just this if you weren't doing that, then what were you doing? You know, that was like my number one. I remember somebody around 25 or 24 asked me, what did I think about the most? And I said, oh, I think about my weight the most. Like it was this automatic response because I knew it. And it was, it was the thing that I thought about the most. And I, the food addiction stuff stayed with me for many years after that. I mean, I really had to reprogram and relearn how to eat and really learn how to eat for the first time because it was after years of um, 
all of this regurgitation and food not really ever going into my body. I mean, it would go in. Like, I, I, I wasn't severely thin. I, I looked like a normal person, so some food was getting in. Um, but it took me many years to figure out, oh, okay, like, I can't, there's no binging anymore. There's no overeating anymore. There's no, like, I eat and then it goes into my stomach after I drink water. And so I had to reprogram that and kind of that process, it was understanding and recognizing how gaslit I felt by society, not just with the misdiagnosis, but just with this idea that I was supposed to be obsessed with my body and that my body just as it was as I woke up in the day was not good enough. And there was all these different things that I needed to do in order to feel good enough and and I, I've now had enough time and life lived that at 36, I can look and I see all of the different phases and the different ways that uh, women's and men's body obsession goes through. And I see it as, you know, it's like you look at, for instance, diet advice from the 90s and we're told the exact opposite now. Mm. And so you just start to see like, and so in the early 2000s, you know, what body types were popular as opposed to what's the body type popular now. And think people think things have gotten better because, oh, well, big butts are in vogue and that's the whole thing. But no, it's just a different way of obsessing over and not feeling good enough and not feeling like there's a wide variety of represented bodies in the world and they're not being represented in media and in any way, shape or form. And I see the same things happening to women now that happened to me when I was growing up. So it's just changing. It's just taking a different form and it's all just gaslighting. It's so crazy. I can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't spend time thinking about the way I look Mm. or how much I should work out Mm -hmm. or what I should and shouldn't eat. You know, like if I, and it's kind of, like, I, th- I think at first thought, like, I don't know what I would do with that time because I've never not mm-hmm. not had that time. Mm-hmm. But it's just, like, kind of like what you shared the other day that we were chatting about, that correlation, mm-hmm. which right. was... Yeah, just the rise of, as women got more, you know, the a great example is women's, the, the pill being invented in the 50s, which promoted women's liberation, sexual freedom in the 60s. And so you're having for the first time women being able to take control of their fertility, um, which is, you know, this uh, hugely controversial thing to this day, of course, because it makes women be able to do more things than just stay at home and, and raise kids. And at that same time, you know, who's the most popular model but Twiggy? You know, this woman who we'd never seen somebody so thin. Mm-hmm. So the ideal of what was the woman figure became this emaciated looking person, mm-hmm. you know, just the thinnest you could possibly be. And the thinness has always been valued, but it just, the way, you know, you look at from the 1800s or something, like what bodies were in vogue then, and then just, yeah, it's like the more progression as women got paid more, you know, they the ideal body type was just thinner and thinner. And, um so yeah, it's it's so clear that the, you know, what you just spoke to, what would we do with all of that time if we weren't obsessing about what we're eating and what our bodies looked like? And at the end of the day, I mean, after doing that for most of my life, I mean, I remember 
going my first diet at 10 years old, um, there's, I have nothing to show for it. It's not like I've, I mean, I should have a triple PhD in body obsession and I, I mean, there's nothing to show for it. You just, you just have all of this time spent focusing on this thing. So maybe you're not really focusing on the fact that we're living in this patriarchal world and, you know, and I think even if you can recognize that we're living in the patriarchy, there's still, and so now as the wellness fad becomes this huge thing and now the disordered eating is now very clean looking eating and cleanses and gluten-free and all these different just a different set of restrictions and it's just packaged in a way that makes you feel like you're doing something quote-unquote healthy for yourself but it's still probably if you're looking at it the same amount of time spent obsessing over the body obsessing over something you know and, and the people that are influencers on instagram or celebrities we're looking at some very unrealistic lifestyles. You know, we're not looking at people that are just eating when they're hungry and stopping when they're full and listening to their body cues and eating what they want. No, we're looking at people that are, you know, working with trainers and eating not a lot of food and eating very, you know, restricted food in order to look good for a photo that we're receiving. And then we create that as our standard and that should be what we should do and why aren't we able to do that as though we could possibly have the means or anybody could in in like let's say the last 10 years um or five like has there uh, is your relationship with food something because for myself I feel like I can get really obsessive with food then I forget Mm-hmm. and I eat what I want mm-hmm. I'm learning to not scale so much from point a to yeah. b because I always go up and down my little, you know, like I can't com- publicly complain about my body, but I do. Um, <laughs> but I'm learning to kind of, you know, dance a little softer with yeah. myself. Um, so, but it's interesting because a lot of the times, you know, in conversations with people that have eating disorders, I'm always told I don't have one mm. because I can live, you know, four months, five months, and I'm like not really thinking about mm-hmm. food. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I have periods where I get really obsessed and identified mm-hmm. with people that have, you know, folks that have eating disorders that have shared. And so what's your mm. current kind of dance with it? Well, I'll say the best thing I ever did was read the book Intuitive Eating. And I remember reading that book and I probably read it in my late 20s. And I they, there's a section of the book where they kind of describe somebody who's gone through the intuitive eating program and this is what an intuitive eater looks like and they describe her day and I remember just rereading those few pages over and over again just kind of in awe at the freedom that this woman had about how connected she was to her body about how connected she was to her not only just her hunger but what does my hunger feel like right now and just to this self-care that I had never even understood. Like, oh, you can just make sure you have all of these different foods on hand just in case you might want one of them. And, and having one of the principles is that you have just tons of this. You know, if you want potato chips, you buy seven bags of potato chips. So there's just no binging you have because you, there's no way you could binge on all of that. And so you kind mm. of takes your mind out of that space of this scarcity thought or the, you know, I think another thing that a lot of people do is this idea, you know, the the eating disorders give us a solvable problem. 
right? Because we can just say, okay, I'm going to have this last binge. You know, this is going to be the last time. I'm going to buy all this unhealthy food and I'm going to eat it all. But tomorrow the cleanse starts. Tomorrow I'm going to lose, I'm going to get there and I'm going to lose those 10 pounds because that's a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. And I see it the same way with alcoholics and I see I'm, almost every other addiction is this kind of bargaining around, okay, I'm just going to do this one last thing. And that gives us a solvable problem because the underlying problem is potentially much harder. You know, maybe the underlying problem is this grief or missing my mom and not being able to speak with her or feeling this grief around this loss of time in my life that I can't even recognize as being, you know, it's not even in my consciousness yet. And so I'm still kind of relating to food in this way to give myself this solvable problem. Um, but I control the control. Absolutely. Um, but to answer your question, so the, I remember reading that in intuitive eating and then, and now I, I very much eat that way and now it's just a completely natural thing, but that was a very learned process that took me many years to get to. And now I just know certain things like I don't go on cleanses. Mm -hmm. I've done the whole 30. I've done candida cleanses. I've done all sorts of things. I can't have any um, restrictions around food because it doesn't help me. It it makes me, it spirals me out. It makes me start obsessing and thinking about food too much. It makes me not check in with my bodily cues. It makes me ignore my body. And so there's just certain things that I've learned that, okay, that's not for me. Any kind of diet actually is not for me. Like for me, it's every food is on, is green lighted and I can have as much or as little of it as I want according to how I'm feeling. I don't give myself a hard time if I binge. You know, I don't give myself a hard time if I overeat. I understand that sometimes my body wants to overeat. I understand that sometimes I want to comfort with food and that's okay. And in fact, me saying that's okay and giving myself love and recognizing and having compassion for myself in the moment makes it so much easier for me to get back on track than if I beat myself up. Mm -hmm. And it also allows me to green light other ways of self-care that are maybe a little more productive than me overeating or eating my feelings. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, I'm, I, I don't know what a perfect relationship to food looks like, but I do think about food a lot less or if I am thinking about food I love cooking you know so I'm still very interested in food but it's more about a creative expression for me now and it's more about a way of me showing love to myself and showing love to other people and showing and kind of creating this art that we get to experience in the moment and it's very fun um, and just making food fun enjoyable and without any you know there's no bad food and that's just my philosophy and the more I'm in and I also don't ever try to lose weight you know that's another that's an instant trigger for me if I say I want to lose weight that I know that I'm going to gain weight because I end up restricting and then I end up eating too much and I end up beating myself up and it just creates and another thing I don't go on the scale I don't know if I said that already but yeah, yeah I just I just don't look at that number because that's just just a way of creating more tension and chaos in my mind and it's an arbitrary number that actually doesn't mean anything and um yeah so I just I completely avoid that it's amazing because first of all you are an amazing chef so I'm really lucky to you know be able to Thank share you. meals with you and I was thinking as you were sharing a lot about language because I you know I, I do spend 
few little time with you, but some time, you know, and I see how you have adapted into this model of intuitive eating. Mm. And I'm thinking about how, you know, we all resonate with different languages, mm. whether if it's something that'll help, you know, a, a, your mental health, a depression, you know, a regulation with food. And, and it's just kind of fascinating to, to find, you know, what works for you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and kind of to really gravitate towards like and look for it and not give up to the voices that you feel. Because I feel like we always have like an internal compass absolutely of like a what book you know a lot of Mm -hmm. people just grab a book that someone gave them Mm -hmm. you know but in recovery it's kind of really important I think to sometimes like really kind of dream a little Mm -hmm. into what kind of literacy you want to encounter to become to follow that part you know that little thread that's still you Oh, absolutely. And mm-hmm. actually, I was just reading a Brene Brown book, uh, The Gifts of Imperfection. I was rereading it. And one of the things she said is she's talking about cultivating compassion and courage. And in her line, she says, you get courage by couraging. You mm-hmm. get compassion by compassioning, as though these are action words. And you don't just get compassion. You get compassion by practicing being compassionate towards mm-hmm. yourself. You get courage by enacting courage and, and putting it into action. And I was thinking about that in all of these ways and about how that can be a really positive thing and also a very negative thing as right as well. You know, that was kind of my experience with the eating disorder stuff was sort of like you are this way and then these behaviors are happening and then it sort of spirals out of control down this way. And but it could also be done in a positive way. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to treat food this way and I'm going to put action towards this way and you know it's like really speaking communicating that and then allowing that to actually shape the experience and have the experience but it does require the action mm-hmm. no and I love it and that even makes me think I don't know who said this but just kind of like I think it was a mindfulness thing but it's like we practice so when the hard time comes we're ready yes you know so it's kind of like harnessing these different tools and relationships with ourselves for when it is fucking hard yeah you know you're ready because it's a i don't know maybe i'm just kind of negative but i don't think life is like a whole big dream that you can you know Mm. you know there's it's real as well there's death and it's real and there's grief and it's real and there's all these things that that's why life is beautiful you know Mm. and it's just so kind of I think I'm, I'm I'm so curious. I've never met a woman that eats, like a cis female that eats like you. Oh. <laughs> you know, in that intuitive eating. And I'm, I'm always so curious to see, like, wow, how that would be seen in context, mm. you know, or, like, how that would impact mm-hmm. people that are struggling with the relationship with food, mm-hmm. which I find kind of, <clears throat> you know, fascinating because there is a freedom. Yes. You know, that... It's not common. It, there's a freedom and... Especially think, after the misdiagnosis and the yeah. bleeding, you know, it's kind of, it's amazing. Well, and I think that's kind of why, it's interesting because my mom was a chef and so I grew up with this mm-hmm. relationship to food and, you know, this Italian-American background family and so food was this big way of showing love and all these different things and and so I grew up and I also grew up in the Bay Area and so there's a huge food culture there as well. So I had all these kind of relationships to food and eating out and then 
food became this very destructive thing for me, became this thing that I was literally unable to receive nourishment. And that metaphor, you know, still persists, kind of the way I choose relationships and the places that are still kind of needing to work and the ways that I kind of refuse nourishment to myself. Um, but it was, yeah, it was definitely. And so I, I worked in restaurants for many years from the time I was 18 to 32, 31. And the first years of that, I really used the access to food to kind of feed the addiction. And to, it was like fueling a lot of my disordered thinking and, you know, it was just, it was definitely this tool to, um, go deeper into my bulimia, into the symptoms of that, into this whole problem until I had the diagnosis. And then actually even after the diagnosis, when I was still kind of in the food addict stuff, but at the end of my career, I worked at this restaurant where food was considered such art and beauty and it made me just understand and appreciate, um, so much about this, this beautiful expression of what food is and and how sacred it is and how nourishing the body and also just recognizing that my like the very scientific you know there's 92 percent of our serotonin is produced in our gut so it does matter what we're eating and so for me it's when I when I think about it from that perspective I naturally want to eat more veggies and I want to eat things that are going to just make me feel good you know, so there's just like the very literal scientific way of, oh, right, if I'm eating, you know, junk food, I'm, it's gonna, even though I, I, I'm still allowed to, and I do that if I want to on occasion, but if I'm doing that often, it absolutely affects my mood. Mm-hmm. So it's just something that I'm also aware of on that level of, of eating to, to just bolster my serotonin levels and so I can just you know it's the same way with sleep or exercise or any of these very base level things you know if you're trying to feel good about yourself and you're not eating well you're not eating proper you're not you know and there are times when I get really depressed and I lose my appetite and I see that I just it's not helpful at all like I'll think okay well I can just go and, you know, not eat for five hours after I wake up in the morning. And then I have a breakdown at 1030 in the morning. And I'm mm-hmm. like, why the heck is this happening? Oh, because you didn't eat any water. Or you didn't drink any water. You didn't eat any food. You didn't do anything. You know, it's like, of course, you're, you're already you're already feeling very delicate because of a life circumstance. And you're not actually doing the things you need to do in order to comfort yourself and bring yourself through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think my relationship with food now is just to celebrate it and to enjoy eating it. And, um, I mean, during the pandemic, I already live in a town that's, there's no restaurants really to eat and so eat out at. And so it's really just allowed me to spend a little more money on groceries because I'm not spending money in other ways and just get exactly what I want and create the meal that sounds the best and really showing up for myself. You know, there's a lot of times where... If I'm just cooking for myself, it's hard for me to want to do, okay, well, I want to do this one meal that has this sauce and this other component. I'll want to do something more basic. But those times that I do actually show up for myself and I make that food, it feels so good. And it's such a beautiful expression of self-love. And I don't binge on it. You know, I'm not overeating it. I eat exactly what I want. And like I said, I love potato chips. I always have potato chips in the house. And I eat them, you know, I just eat the amount that feels right. You know, it's like... 
Yeah, it's all it's all fun. I just made these moon pie cookies the other day that had pretzels and potato chips and they had marshmallows inside and they were so fun and decadent <laughs> and delicious. And I made them for myself and I made them for my friends and it was like this fun gift to give and it was this fun thing for me to eat. And I didn't feel any compulsion around overeating and I didn't feel bad about it. And, and I just know that my body balances out naturally. You know, I think that's another thing that we forget and we've kind of been programmed to think differently that we need to control our bodies and therefore then we'll be able to fit into the right pants but really like your body just balances out naturally if you eat when you're hungry and you stop when you're full and you don't overeat Mm -hmm. you can kind of anything is available Mm -hmm. and maybe there are times like over the summer I I was like got really into eating ice cream sandwiches which I think you know I and then I also noticed like if I'm eating something obsessively that there's usually a psychological component Mm -hmm. and ice cream for me is like wanting mother comfort you know sweet milky that thing like so I'm usually just wanting different comfort and that was a thing that I was giving to myself at the time for me to comfort with and you know I gained a few pounds and then kind of once I stopped eating ice cream like I was eating like three ice cream sandwiches a day at one point. What does candy mean? Candy? Uh Uh-huh you're eating candy all the time. Oh, for you? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think like maybe there's something sweet and exciting and like a rush that you're getting from that that you're not getting in another Enjoy. area. Of your life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, or like I notice if I'm really wanting to crunch on something that maybe there's something I'm kind of crunching over in my brain that I can't really get an answer to. And so it's like I'm just sort of like putting food into my mouth in order to feel like I'm doing something. It's interesting because your sensory world is very connected and in tuned with food. Mm-hmm. You know, like I've never like thought, even when you were sharing that you made yourself a really good meal with the sauce and the mm-hmm. components, I was like, and my life, you know, because, <laughs> but it's like your connection, you know, to this sensory world and, and kind of like your long-term relationship also mm. with like food, you know, from your mother yeah. to, you know, your misdiagnosis to your, you know, everything. Oh, food has been such a, a symbol, mm. right? Well, I mean, yeah. And I also kind of feel like, how is it, you know, I'm just thinking about how food is used so politically, you know, that we, we have places like food deserts and we have... Just this total inaccess, you know, when you look at, I don't know when the last time you saw an elementary school lunch was, but it's just absolute crap what the kids are getting. And it's, nasty. it's horrible. And I mean, there's the a lot of places that's the kids' best meal of the day, wow. you know, and they're getting so, free yeah. breakfast and lunch and, and that's what the government's supplying them with. And then we're wondering why, you know, all these behavior problems are happening and all these other things. And there's no nutrition taught and there's no nutrition really taught in medical industries and you go and you get a pill instead of looking at what your diet looks like or what all the other psychological components of your life look like and and food is number you know I I always say sleep is number one and food is number two and exercise is number three and that's just how it goes if you're not sleeping right if you don't have a comfortable great place to go to sleep at night that feels good to you you're never going to be functioning uh, in the ways in all the optimal ways and the same thing with food and I think it's absolutely used politically and I think you know in many different dynamics and certainly with um, controlling food and wanting it to be this thing um, but you know it's 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 something we participate in every single day multiple times a day and and I think we've totally lost our sensory or maybe the more sensual experience of food 
So you could say, could you say that you, do you, I'm going to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you use food for your mental health? For Absolutely. all of it. Absolutely. Right? For the pot, all this, the whole spectrum of it, right? Oh, yeah. Because I wanted to ask you um, if you could share your tool. Oh, right. Our tool for the week here. Yeah. So my tool, I was thinking about it just a moment ago in a walk, and I was thinking about how, and also something you said this weekend around knowing your program. I thought that was mm -hmm. so insightful because, and really knowing your program is knowing yourself mm -hmm. and trusting in yourself. And I'm somebody who gets addicted to readings, you could say, and gets astrology readings and, <laughs> yeah. you know, human design readings and ancestry readings and all these things because I want to know myself. But the truth is we already, we already know, you know, we already have the intuitive sense. And the experience of going through the misdiagnosis was so, it was like living in the twilight zone for years. And even though I knew that there was um, some part of me knew that this wasn't right, what was happening, and that wasn't something that I was causing, I was just conditioned to believe that it was this thing. Mm -hmm. And so my tool is to recognize um, how, and kind of going, weaving in that Brene Brown thread around our actions, kind of producing our thoughts, producing our state of being, producing our life. And so if we're, you know, if I'm in a depressed state and I'm using actions of a depressed person, then that depressive state continues. Mm -hmm. If I'm in a depressed state and I can reach out and I can have a really good, healthy, yummy meal that feels good and I can exercise and sweat that day and I can make sure I get good sleep and I don't have my phone right next to my bed, you know, these actions are what are creating my thoughts then are creating my experience so my tool is to trust yourself and also to be conscious of your programs you know recognize when your patterns are getting in the way of how you actually want to live and experience life mm -hmm. and of course there's so many things mentally that are going on with people and you know there are things that are just out of our control or what would you say with you know how would someone in your experience with misdiagnosis in this moment mm. be able to know their program gosh if i was going to talk to somebody who'd been misdiagnosed um and maybe wasn't you know i would say um just do do research you know and figure out try to understand more holistically you know if there is something another possibility mm -hmm. or if something doesn't resonate with you to don't dismiss that mm -hmm. to really pay attention to that and to focus on that and you know some things can be experiments maybe you try something on for a little bit and then you realize that doesn't work for you but understand really take your medical uh, your health into your hands, you know, and, and create the thing that's going to be the most comprehensive healing program for you, whatever that looks like. And if there's, you know, just knowing that there is no higher, you know, there's, yes, of course, doctors go through lots of training to help us, but doctors make mistakes all the time. And um, being aware of, you know, really taking your, your health into your hands. Yeah, that don't give up is so real, you know, and like, yeah, don't give up. Yeah. It was interesting with your tool, 
because you it it kind of linked back to the beginning mm. when you were referring to how we talk to ourselves, right? Because so many oh, of the yes. things that we do come back to how we talk to ourselves as the, you know the the seed and to know your program like um as that offering this week like how what does that mean you know it's like know your program is understanding why you want to do something and why you don't right sometimes it can be really simple you know knowing your program is like you know if you're angry every morning like why are you angry every morning right you don't have to change it but you can know what's happening you know so it's this invitation to to kind of understand it beforehand without having to fix anything about you know yourself because that really opens up that creates space because in a culture where there's a beginning and an end especially in the medical model there's a beginning and an end it's so nice nice is a terrible word it's so relieving to know that sometimes you can just see things and not do anything about it especially when you're you know in a kind of mental health issue and tissue struggle so I think wanted to offer that as a little absolutely sometimes we don't really know what fucking people mean when they say be positive oh yeah what does that mean I mean there's so much there's so much language that I think is so damaging especially if you're really in a depressive state it's really hard to hear any of that and and relate to it or feel a connection to that and really like the best thing I can say is just start cultivating compassion you know it's like yeah you don't have to change anything about your life just be compassionate or be okay with it mm-hmm. you know if you're going to mm-hmm. wake up angry every morning you don't even have to solve that problem but just have compassion for that have mm-hmm. compassion for that part of yourself that needs to act in that way and and understand i i do feel like healing can occur at all sorts of different levels and all sorts of different ways and mm-hmm. i've tried so many different modalities in order to heal myself and I can't say that there was one that particularly was the thing that helped better than others. However, I will say that um, the times in my life that I'm the happiest and feeling the best and then therefore creating experiences that make me feel worthy and all these other things um, is when my self-talk is very compassionate and very sweet. So, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, the dog is barking, so I guess it's our time to partake our ways. But thank you so much for this chat yeah. and for sharing your story and for being in our mental pod today. I'm so happy to be here, and it was great chatting and sharing this story. And I have to say, just the experience of talking about something that for so long was so shameful for me and to be able to speak about it and share it and relieve so much of the shame I have around it. And if that's another takeaway that someone has, you know, just know that, that there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, it's, these are all just pieces of ourselves and they're creating this experience of our life. And the shame is just, is trying to tell us that we're not worthy of happiness and fulfillment and all these other things. And it's, it's not true. You know, the shame is part of it and, but it can be relieved and, expressing it is expressing the story is a really helpful way to do that so thank you for giving me this opportunity yeah Yeah. (laughs) 